the School of Communication and Media at Montclair State University. This is the Communication and Media Research Collaboratory, also known as the CMRC. The CMRC explores research and teaching techniques across the field of communication. I'm your host, Dr. Vanessa Greenwood, bringing you the results of faculty and students working together to solve complex problems and drive our culture forward. October is Health Literacy Month, so it seems appropriate that I have titled this episode Disorderly Conduct. Is gamer addiction a thing? So to loiter with me around this question is my colleague, Dr. Christopher McKinley, who specializes in health communication and media effects in examining the role that messages play in shaping individuals' health perceptions and behaviors. Welcome, Dr. McKinley. Hi. It's good to be here. Good to have you again. Um, Let's get right to it. Sure. The Let's World go. Health Organization recently listed, uh, actually last year, in their international classification of diseases, that gaming addiction is a mental disorder. And um, among their criteria, they said that um, it was characterized by impaired control, um, that gaming would take precedence over other interests and daily activities, that there would be negative consequences, uh, significant impairment, and so forth, um, and that such behavior would occur for at least 12 months. Mm. Um, that actually describes probably every child that I've given birth to who is now in their teens, late teens. But I, I want us to talk about how communication media researchers, what we can do to... Um, uncover or actually untangle some of the issues involved in um, gaming as a mental disorder. Mm. Um, we know that peer research center statistics from 2017 tell us that that young men make up a dispor- uh, disproportionately large share of people who play video games in the United States, mm-hmm. but about four in 10 women and roughly a quarter of Americans ages 65 and older also say right. that they play video games at least sometimes. So these statistics don't exactly paint a picture of moral panic. And so, um, and I noticed also in the Pew Research statistics that uh, puzzle and strategy games are among the most popular type of video yeah. games, right? Because yeah. we're playing across computer, TV, right, right, right. Um, game col- consoles, and smartphones. But, um you know, the, the WHO or the World Health Organization statistics say that only 3% of the 2.6 billion gamers mm. worldwide mm. are potentially impacted mm. by this disorder, right. Right. the gaming disorder. So I think maybe this might be the reason why psychologists are, um, psychology experts are pushing back and saying that the World Health Organization mm. is premature in right. its diagnosis. Um, so... I mean, your thoughts in terms of what, again, we in the School of Communication and Media can bring to this sure. this dilemma. Right, right. Yeah, so and I can't speak to the, the clinical component of it, obviously. That's not my, that's not my background. But, uh, you know, I will say some of the other work that I've done in the past looking at, for example, gambling addiction or even sex addiction or compulsive sexual uh, behavior, which have been classified under kind of the DSM um, categories, even though some, you know, in some some areas, things like sexual compulsivity has been viewed as somewhat controversial. At least that was, you know, clinically classified. Whereas with this, you know, it's clearly a gray area. Um, but of course, I don't have that clinical background. I think from a communication perspective, you know, historically we've looked at gaming, um, kind of from the other direction uh, in terms of 
its possibility in terms of kind of from from at least from my perspective in terms of health communication from kind of a educational possibilities because it's so immersive um, because it's highly participatory uh, uh, highly interactive there's all these opportunities for from it from again from an educational perspective to really benefit the individual however it, I mean uh, like a lot of things if you were looking at it from potentially some of the the problematic components of heavy gameplay, we could, of course, look at things like psychosocial health. And some students who have, uh, unfortunately, have had to bear with my discussions on (laughs) psychosocial health over the various semesters they've taken classes with me, uh, things like social support or social skill development or even feelings of loneliness or connectedness, it would be kind of important to look at whether gameplay plays a role in that. And potentially... You know, again, one could argue that gameplay actually promotes social skill development, promotes better social support, even though some of these individuals, you know, who are concerned over gaming addiction may argue the opposite. Uh, but again, the, the research in that area is, uh, isn't uh, nearly as extensive in some other areas because, you know, gaming communities and, and Dr. Cronut, I think, could probably talk a little bit more about this than I could because of some of his work in video games specifically. Uh, you know that they, they are these large communities and diverse communities, as you kind of acknowledged in in what you were talking about in terms of age and uh, and gender. So because of that, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways and different types of uh, relationships that could be in existence. Yeah, and yeah. I think it sounds like you're talking mostly about. Um, sort of a pro-social movement, how we integrate gaming. And gaming yeah. is such a, a popular, widespread, mm. global phenomenon. Mm. It's a leisure activity right. that's very popular. So once again, looking at the data, only 3% of the world's yeah. population is impacted by this um, mental right. disorder right, right. as it's currently being yeah. thought of. Um, earlier this year, the conversation uh, pointed out um, – that the research evidence really is largely exploratory. And Mm. I think we're all kind of in agreement where there just aren't enough uh, data to actually support uh, pathologizing game addiction right now. Um, They said that um, they cited a community of psychology experts that asserted that gaming addiction is may not be directly related to mental or physical health on mm. its own. Right. And I think this is where communication and media scholars come in, mm. where we see sort of the, the interrelationship between the the user, the device, the mm-hmm. story. I mean, you're right. Yeah. Dr. Kernut really should be here with us to talk about <laughs> sort of the functionality of games and the storylines and right. how they're built to right. engage almost to yeah. the extreme. Right, right. right? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and I was talking to him the other day about this. And and, and I, I absolutely think, the, 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 the you know, one of the unique features of gaming is the, the, the interactive component and, and at times the narrative component. But he did tell me that the main drive for a lot of individuals is the competitive aspect of gaming, even more so than than the storyline. And in some cases, the storyline may be completely discounted in favor of the competitive nature. So that you brought up things like puzzle games. There isn't much of a storyline there, but people are still playing at a high levels. Um, so uh, that doesn't mean I, I don't think there's a value in the, in, the, in the the fact that the stories can change based on decisions that people make. They're so, so much more um, dynamic than, you know, a fictional film that one may watch because you're 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 making decisions that impact the storyline but nevertheless there's that competitive component which is so strong so i think differentiating perhaps differentiating among 
types yeah, of games, sure. the environments. I know in yeah. South Korea, they have these cafes, right, mm-hmm. that are set up where the the gaming experience is not just communal. It's also commercial. It's how, how some yeah. South Koreans make their living. Yeah. Yeah, right. right to the detriment of their social life, mm-hmm. and in the case of the the 2014 documentary Love Child, mm-hmm. um, where it can be devastating. Sure. Um, yeah. So to commodify the gaming experience is, is a different. I'm sure that yeah. plays a role in in ga- the gaming disorder. We're yeah. clear, as you pointed out, we're not neuroscientists, right? Yeah. So the the chemical structure of the brain as mm. it's altered in cases like gambling addiction. Yeah. Um, there might be there is some suggestion that that might also be the case with engaging right. in particular game gameplay. Right. Um, but I think when we talk about uh, rehabilitation, which I guess is one part of that education component, right? Again, for the very small percentage of people who are impacted by this, um, there um, there was a. A Vice News report, I think that I shared with you about a game rehab program in called Restart mm-hmm. in Seattle, and uh, the first phase of the program includes no contact with the outside world and daily therapy sessions, usually usually lasting two months. Mm-hmm. And the first month is thirty thousand uh, dollars. After that, recovering game addicts live in a halfway house with their fellow patients, and that's seven thousand dollars a month. And as I looked at this Vice News report and some of the things that are happening, um, the, they get chore charts, they learn how to cook, and I'm thinking, well, that's my actual model for parenting. I'm a pretty rough parent <laughs> for my four kids. And I'm wondering to what extent are there underlying causes uh, that manifest themselves in things like gamer yeah. addiction? And if so, then how can communication scholars sort Man. of contribute to this this conversation or um, rehabilitation, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds, I mean, it sounds like the things that they are trying to, to do there relate just as much to maybe broader, like, technological dependence or digital dependence that some yeah. people sometimes are concerned of or just any type of device beyond just gaming. Uh, you know, it sounds like they're trying to, Get these individuals to remove themselves from a lot of the the the, the technologies yeah. that are part of you know twenty first century life for for everyone, um, and to, to you know to be to, to kind of engage in kind of normal physical activities, not physical activities like running around, but like normal things you would do in your life beyond just being in front of a screen. So that could apply to a lot of different things. Um, yeah. Uh, sure, and they sure they get re-indu- reintroduced to the technology, you know, not to the extent that they were exposed to yeah. it before. Mm-hmm. But I think it points to this fact, this idea that in different that technology that the gameplay specifically can be used to think to in terms of health, right? So personal data monitoring mm-hmm. very different than than gameplay, right. right? The types of shooter games or mm-hmm. even um, you know some of the games that Dr. Kernet has his students study. Yeah. Um, that that there is sort of the gamification of health mm. that seems to be in this middle ground of where we've got that competitive structure, mm. right? So think of fitness apps. Yeah, yeah. Right. You're 
it's a friendly competition mm-hmm. and yeah. really you're you're gaming against yourself in some yeah. ways right. right to see sure. if you how many steps you can get yeah. um you know to kind of one up it mm-hmm. that it seems that that there needs to be um some measured differences between that kind of i guess not addiction to mm-hmm. self pers- personalized yeah. data but but we need to be able to name and to count to some extent the differences between those two types of behaviors right, that are right. well it's interesting because in my class you know early on in the semester that I'm teaching a technology and health course right now and did we talk a little bit about uh, the different types of feedback that are possible with digital technology for uh, you know health behaviors and obviously fitness apps provide us with a range of different types of feedback and one of those is kind of comparative feedback uh, with other mm-hmm. people you know but even just descriptive feedback based on how you're doing compared to how you did let's say last week in terms of how many miles you ran or mm-hmm. steps you you know, you know steps you took uh, but I share with them an article that talked about, you know, at what point does um, the, these fitness apps start to become uh, a, a kind of almost like a chore for the individual? And then yeah. the kind of the, 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 the kind of engaging aspect of it becomes uh, and, and also kind of you kind of enjoying working out gets removed and you're just too much you're, you're focused too much on the on what the device says and kind of being fixated on it. And that could conceivably be problematic. You know, some people in the fitness community would argue that that becomes kind of a kind of a, pro- a problem. So when you don't have that app with you, are you as engaged or as motivated? Uh, and and so there, there's that. There's maybe a, there's maybe a fine line at some point there, um, in terms of it's getting too much. You know, relying too much on that information in terms to motivate you, you know, from that app or from that technology. So I. So yeah. I'm a qualitative researcher. So yeah. I look at um, I, I would love to study um, users, which is interesting that user is basically that term mm. we use for those who are addicted to drug use drugs. Yeah, right. Or those who use technology right. user. It's true. It's yeah. interesting. It's the same term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. But the idea that I'd like to hear people how they talk about it. What mm. is what does their discourse reveal about their relationship mm-hmm. to their devices sure, and sure. to personalized data like that? Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 a far it's far removed from gamer addiction, mm. um, but yet it it calls for research about how gamers talk about their experience right. and what about those games um, sort of leads them to to want more. Right. I think, yeah. yeah. And I absolutely think it, 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 this is r- at least right now be ripe for more qualitative uh, type of uh, research on on those individual experiences because a lot of it is going to be kind of anecdotal from person to person and vary from person to person before you can even assume that there's any sort of consistent themes to then maybe follow up with more kind of quantitative right. survey type of work, developing instruments to try to assess these things more for, uh, in a very standardized way. But it'd be very presumptuous of me from, as, from a quantitative perspective to assume that there's these consistent themes without there being that, that uh, initially that, that heavy qualitative assessment or uh, in, investigation. I'm sorry. I don't know. I sense a mixed method. Yes, Collaboration, absolutely. Dr. <laughs> let's, McKinley. Let's do it. Let's That's do it. what I, I, let's do it. Okay. Well, we're out of time, but thank you for joining us. Once again, Dr. McKinley is an associate professor in the School of Communication and Media here at Montclair State University. He teaches courses in health communication, e-health communication, health and mass media, and health communication theory. 
I'm your host, Dr. Vanessa Greenwood. You can find out more about the Communication and Media Research Collaboratory at cmrcollaboratory.org and on Twitter at cmrcollaborate. You've been listening to the CMRC podcast here on WMSC. Thank you.